Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, adapters. Welcome back to another exciting episode of America Adapts. Okay, what a bizarre week. I wonder how many of you actually got to see the totality of the eclipse. I actually was in Brevard, North Carolina with my two boys watching it, and yes, it lived up to the hype. It was so brief, but it was just this surreal, beautiful thing to behold, and it was actually quite entertaining to see how eclipse fever took hold of the country. Okay, on the show... I have adaptation reporter Erica Bolstad. Erica recently was the staff adaptation reporter at E&E News on their Climate Wire beat, and now she's doing some independent journalism. Erica has done some amazing stories on this emerging issue, and I've been a big fan for years. We talk a bit about what it means to cover adaptation as a news issue, but we mainly talk about one of her stories focusing on what is an emerging problem in adaptation climate gentrification. Erica walks us through her story that focused mainly on this issue in Miami. It is a fascinating topic. Also, I want to note last week's episode. I had on the noted climate skeptic, and maybe infamous is more appropriate, Mark Morano of Climate Depot. For those who didn't listen, he's worked with Rush Limbaugh, Senator Inhofe, and has been the bane of climate scientists for years. Well, I had him on last week, and it was great, friendly, and of course, a disturbing conversation. I did not invite him on to debate him. I wanted to hear why he does what he does, and he shared this story. And then previous guest, Randy Olson, science communication expert, he came on after Mark to dissect Mark's interview. So to be honest, I was a bit apprehensive about having Mark on. I've always sneered at legitimate news shops giving platforms to these people, but I wasn't having him on to debate. It was to learn how to communicate our side more effectively, and based on the numerous messages that I've received from people who have listened, that's how they took it. They even admitted Mark seemed like a nice guy, but they were fascinated by his motivations and inspired by Randy's tough assessment of Mark and Randy's recommendations on a way forward. I highly recommend you take the time to listen to this provocative, but I think very informative episode. Okay, some housekeeping. First off, thank you to those adapters supporting America Adapts. We are now a nonprofit organization and accepting donations. This is the hardest part of being a nonprofit organization. So if you've been thinking about supporting America Adapts, but you just keep forgetting, now's the time. For those of you who are looking for organization support, please consider this one. Go to americaadapts.org and you can easily find the donate page where you can give one-time donations or better yet, a recurring monthly donation. So for the price of a large cafe latte a month, you can support a podcast bringing you the best and brightest in the world of adaptation. And I want to thank those who have already generously donated through the Flip Cause donate page. You can find the links in the show notes or at the website and just look down on that smartphone of yours. I truly appreciate all the support that's come. And thanks to those who are Using that recurring donation option, long-term support will ensure the podcast grows and the podcast has the resources to record on location and build out this platform for promoting the field of adaptation. Also, many people listen to this podcast on a website. Consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes so each new episode is automatically downloaded to you. For foundation and corporate donors looking to learn more about the podcast, please contact me at americadaps at gmail.com. Also, I'm headed to the annual landscape architects conference in los angeles in late october i'm being sponsored by a corporate donor to see what the field of landscape architecture is up to on adaptation if you are interested in sponsoring this type of podcast please contact me for further information and actually this will be in late october and if any of my listeners who are working in the field are in los angeles maybe it's a chance to meet 
meet up for coffee, meet up for a drink. Maybe I'll have a chance. I'm building in some extra time to see what you're doing out there in Los Angeles. So yeah, let me know in advance. And okay, finally, future guests include the Graduate School of Design at Harvard University. I went to Boston and interviewed students and professors at Harvard working on adaptation in East Boston. Then I have on Dr. Pat Michaels of the Cato Institute. Once again, a rich conversation on free market adaptation. And I actually think many of you will be surprised by some of Dr. Michael's answers. Generally, he's known to be highly skeptical of the climate change movement. But in this episode, we talked adaptation. All right, let's do this podcast. Welcome back, adapters. In today's episode, I have on Erica Bolstad, who until very recently was the climate change adaptation reporter at Climate Wire, part of the E&E News Network. Welcome to the podcast, Erica. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I've been following your work for a while at E&E, and it, I always love having reporters on the podcast. You were at E&E until very recently. So what are you doing right now? What, what, what are you, what's keeping you busy? A couple things. Um, I have some personal things that are keeping me busy, but um, I'm also working on a book project. I've been working on it for a couple of years and the time to just spend a few months on it this summer uh, kind of opened up. And uh, so I'm working on that book project right now and I will be uh, freelancing as well. And right now I'm, I'm uh, on the West Coast for the, for the time being. I'm actually in Oregon, based in Oregon right now. Um, I'm normally in Washington, D.C., but but yeah, so I'm, I'm out in, in the West, and since I've mostly been on the East Coast the last decade or so, it's been really interesting to kind of get a taste for um, some of the climate stories that are out here. Well, I mean, I'm in D.C., and you uh, mainly have been based in D.C., but we've actually never met up, and I've been trying to coordinate with you for a while, yeah, and here we are finally yeah, talking, and exactly. you're on the other side of the coast. So. I know, right? <laughs> So if I have this right, you are also a yoga instructor? I am, yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, I was thinking about that. You know, you have your website. It, it occurred to me, what a perfect combination that if you're covering climate change, being a yoga instructor must be just very helpful to you dealing with that topic. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I, there is definitely a connection. I heard an interview a couple of weeks ago with, um, oh, I'm trying to remember who it was, but, um, I heard an interview with one of the older kind of the, uh, the, the lions of, of climate change science. And, and he was asked about how people, how people could, you know, really care about climate change. Like what would make them care about climate change? What would make them take action? And the person who was interviewing him, the journalist who was interviewing him was, was saying, oh, well, is it the science stuff? Is it this? Can we show them the, the graphs that do all these things. Can we, and this guy who had basically founded really was just deeply rooted in research and had, had done the foundation of the scientific inquiry around climate change, uh, actually said, <laughs> he said, actually, we just, we just need to get people to care about each other. And I thought that was so interesting. It just kind of jumped out at me because I also teach yoga as well. And, and I, I feel like my, my yoga and my writing are very deeply intertwined as well. And it just jumped out at me that, that, um, one of the things you have to do is get people to care. And, and so I think that that philosophy is a big part of the kind of reporting that I've done is finding stories that people really care about. Okay. So how long have you been a reporter? 
Oh man, <laughs> more than twenty years. Yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. So where where'd you get started? I mean, how, uh, journalism school. I mean, what was your first newspaper? Sure, I went to Washington and Lee in in Virginia, which was a big leap because I did grow up here in Oregon, um, and so I went from the Pacific Northwest to the South, uh, which was a big jump. Um, but I went there because I wanted to go to a, a small liberal arts school that also had a journalism program, and um, I studied journalism there, and I had a couple of newspaper interns ships during, you know, right, right uh, during school and right after, after graduating. And I ended up at some newspapers in North Carolina and South Carolina. I worked at, um, I worked at an afternoon newspaper, which kind of dates me. I think it was like one of the last afternoon <laughs> newspapers in America. It was called The Item in Sumter, South Carolina. So I worked there for a year and that was sort of my like graduate school, I think. Um, and then I, I worked in North Carolina for about three years at the News and Record in Greensboro, North Carolina, uh, which is a wonderful, wonderful place to be um, a young reporter. And uh, then I went to the Miami Herald and I was there for seven years in uh, Florida, in South Florida. And then I was uh, then I moved up to Washington and I worked in the McClatchy, Washington Bureau. And I, I did a couple of different things in Washington. I was the Washington correspondent for the Anchorage Daily News and the Idaho Statesman, which at the time were both McClatchy newspapers. And, and then I was the, the Washington correspondent for the Miami Herald for a little while. And then I covered environmental and climate change issues for a little while too, right? In, um, at the beginning of when the Obama administration started to roll out the clean power plan and some of the, um, some of the, you know, the foundations of the Obama climate legacy. Okay. So when did you head over to, e how long have you been at E&E? Well, oh, I, I was at E&E for about a year and a half. Yeah. And I had freelanced for them for a while too. I had done a lot of, uh, when I was doing some research in North Dakota, I had freelanced a bunch of stories kind of at the height of the oil boom for E&E as well. Okay. So you were doing energy and general climate stories, but at E&E, and that's why I was very interested. Is you 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 got onto the adaptation beat? Were you kind of doing those stories even before E and E? No, I was not. And um, I think that at E and E, my editor Lisa Friedman, she really had a lot of foresight. There weren't a lot of reporters covering adaptation as a beat when I was uh, when I started it. Uh, there are many more now, and I think you can see that in like the New York Times coverage of climate change and some of the other people who are covering um, adaptation now. There's a lot. There's a lot more out there. A lot more widely read about adaptation. But it was Lisa's idea that there needed to be a beat that focused not really on like emissions, but kind of what people were already doing about um, adapting to climate change. And I think that I don't I think it's a big leap. You know, I think that and my my focus was on the United States. Um, it wasn't looking internationally so much, but that was a that's a big leap because um, until then, these things have been very um, there have been I maybe a little bit of I think there's some concern in some quarters that, you know, focusing on adaptation means that you lose sight of some of the emission targets. And, and I, we can talk more at length about that and how I feel about that. <laughs> but but um, but yeah, I thought it, it was a lot of it, she had a lot of foresight in um in thinking up this beat and, and I really, really loved it. It's, it's a, it's a meaty area of coverage. There's a lot happening in the United States right now. You could spend all of your time in Florida. <laughs> you could, right. um, you know, you could spend all of your time in New York City. You could spend all of your time in San Francisco and you could spend all of your time in middle of America where people are adapting to climate change as well without sort of that coastal threat of sea level rise. There's many, many other things. Many, many other things are happening. And people are doing some really interesting, uh, 
work and research and on the ground kind of stuff in this area. I think it was great that they dedicated a whole, like a person on the adaptation beat. I've had Christopher Flavel from Bloomberg News on the podcast and you're, you're right. You're seeing more stories on adaptation, but I still don't think uh, a lot of these newspapers and magazines are like dedicating those reporters solely to adaptation. And I think there's real value to making that full commitment to the issue because the emission issue is much different than the adaptation issue and it's worthy of its own reporter. Yeah, I, I mean, I absolutely agree. And I, I really, I love Christopher's work. He's done some really great stories about relocation and some of the, the tensions there. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it's a good, you know, it's a good area of coverage. There's a lot on, uh, and when you're writing about climate change, there's a lot to think about. And adaptation is the sort of the emerging area right now. This is what, what people are actually doing. And so as a longtime newspaper reporter who for many years I wrote about uh, Washington for audiences outside of Washington for regional newspapers, I have always kind of had my finger on the pulse of like what people in those audiences, what people in those places are thinking about and how the, you know, sort of these national issues or what's happening in Washington affects them and what they think about them. And so this beat was a very natural fit for me. You know, it was, it was something that, that was easy to, well, not easy, <laughs> but I knew how to find stories on this beat because for many years I'd covered local government. For many years I'd been writing for, you know, general audiences about complicated policy things, policy questions and how they affected people's ordinary lives. And so that's really what adaptation is. You know, it's, it's how people are, what they're doing about climate change. And, and it's also, you know, it's a philosophical question because sometimes it means that people have to acknowledge climate change is happening, even if maybe their politics or their religious beliefs or their, um, you know, what they've, they've come to think about science. Sometimes it means having a little bit of cognitive dissonance that they're doing stuff, even though they may not actually tell you that they're doing it because of climate change. Yeah, I think the the immediacy of the issue is like you're adapting now. People can get their heads around that as opposed to, all right, change your light bulb. So 50 years from now, the emission issue won't be such such a problem. I mean, it, it's, I really feel bad for folks on the emission side because it's, it is a tough kind of sell to make these conversations relevant to what people are doing today. So yeah, the adapt- you can go out and what you did in Miami and such, that's, those are immediate issues that you can kind of share with people. Right. Right. And yeah. And I think that, um, I, I did a, I did some stories a couple months ago when there was flooding on the Mississippi, um, because I, I had heard all these mayors talking about, you know, trying to get more money for infrastructure. They were in Washington and, And they were talking about some of their infrastructure needs and the things that they need in along the Mississippi, along the 10 state corridor of the Mississippi. And I really um, when I started thinking about it, I was like, well, these are a lot of, um, you know, these are these many of these places are, are red states. These are places where they don't necessarily vote for people who are very enlightened about climate change, including the president who, you know, has called it a hoax. 
and exited the Paris Agreement. So, you know, I thought a lot about that, like, well, would it be interesting to find out what they're thinking? And in fact, I did. I was, I, I would have loved to have like driven the whole, you know, Mississippi River corridor, but I could only really pick off a couple places. And so I chose the areas right around St. Louis, just north of St. Louis and then south to Memphis, um, to talk to people in those places. And that's where you really find out what people think. And, and one of the, the approaches that I took to that particular story was instead of asking people when I interviewed them, do you believe in climate change? Which is, you know, a loaded question and not a fair question. And, and it asks them to talk about something they believe in. And so if you, if you question it, then they, you know, then they get defensive. Instead, I would just talk to them about what kind of changes were happening in their immediate environment. And everyone talked about very specific things that scientists have in recent years begun to attribute to climate change, increased precipitation and, and, uh, you know, in particular and a few other things. And so, and warmer winters and, and the, and then I would say, you know, do you think this has anything to do with climate change? Where are you on climate change? And then they would say, you know, it might be climate change. And I found that was a very like approachable way of talking to people about the things that, that were affecting them and helping them maybe understand that. I mean, it's not my job to communicate climate change to them, but it is my job to tell their stories. And, um, so I found that that was more helpful than saying, yeah, buy this kind of light bulb or get an electric car or, you know, those sorts of those sorts of things that are a little bit more abstract where it's hard to see how your individual consumer action can sometimes, you know, be um, a part of the bigger picture. Well, I think that's very clever of you. I was wondering where you were going with that. When you're having these conversations, how do you approach climate change? And I've had other journalists talk about how they do it. So you, you kind of started off with, okay, these are some of the impacts. These are some of the changes that, that you're seeing, but you do make a point of bringing up climate change after they've sort of acknowledged or shared with you. And I think that's good because I think there's some approaches out there. And I hear this from, I don't know, government officials or even conservation groups that, you know, I don't even bring up climate change. It's just, why bother? And I, and I get they don't want to create some friction at the get-go, but I think what you're doing is clever. But I think that criticism from the mitigation side that, oh, well, when you're focusing on adaptation, you're forgetting about mitigation. If people out there can't learn more about the broader issue of climate change via adaptation, then we're really missing an opportunity there. And so I, I like what you did there because some groups don't even want to bring it up in the context of climate change. And you know what? Be clever about it, but there's a there's there has to be some sort of learning going on through this process. So. Well, as far as I can tell, I covered city government. Like I said, I covered city government for a long time in, in local governments, county governments and state government in, in Florida and in North Carolina and South Carolina. And one of the things that I did when I started writing about adaptations is I, adaptation is I, I went and looked at kind of what cities and local governments were doing because I was familiar with them. And a lot of them are, they're doing a lot. And so if you talk to people, um, Dan Zarelli in New York City, for example, the, the chief resilience officer there, people like that will say we're doing both. We're working on emissions and we're working on adaptation both at the same time. They have a dual message. Now, that dual message might go over much easier in New York City than it does in, say, Minot, North Dakota, another place where I 
wrote some stories from last summer, but they are doing both. They are working on emissions and they are working on the changes that have already begun to occur and the changes that because of the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere are going to be occurring in the next, you know, decade already without, regardless of what we do about emissions over the next, you know, 30 years. So I think people are really actually having those conversations at the same time in a lot of places. Probably not. And you think of maybe a farm bureau in Iowa, someone just doesn't bring it up at all, but he's just talking about the local weather. It's tough. It's tricky, but uh, there's a learning opportunity that we, we can't lose. We can't lose a generation of that. So, well, okay. So you jumped right into one of the stories that you've talked about and you, sh- yeah, you yeah. and I've, I've got, <laughs> I, there's a story I want to talk about and I know this was a, a, an important one for you, but you sent me some links to some of your stories. Are those of, I was able to open them and go to them, but if I had those in my show notes, can anyone open them or are they behind the ENE paywall? No, everything I sent you is an open story. So they're, they are, they're not within the ENE paywall. And ClimateWire has this amazing agreement with uh, Scientific American. And so a lot of ClimateWire stories, there's a, there's a story from ClimateWire that's available to the public every day on the Scientific American website. So, so some of those stories, I don't think I sent you any links there, but, um, but you can find ClimateWire work on Scientific American. No, I did find on their website. I did randomly yeah. find they had all your articles on one page, which is really nice. Um, yeah, yay. <laughs> yeah, so just, I probably should have mentioned that Climate Wire and E&E, it is a, a, a pay for service if uh, those of you out there, but I mean, I had it for a super long time, then had a break, then had it again, but I mean, it, you guys, I mean, you're not there anymore, but just really producing some amazing content and it, it's, you know, the who's who of people in the DC and the major urban areas. I mean, they have, they get E&E and it's just some great environmental writing. And so, yeah. Yeah. There is no better, there is no better source for information about what's happening on, uh, in climate, in the climate world and in the environmental and energy world than, than E&E, um, green wire and climate wire and energy wire. It really, I have to like, there are some amazing reporters and editors there who are doing really incredible, insightful work. So I highly encourage anyone out there who, you know, can get a subscription. A lot of institutions have subscriptions. So if you have some listeners who, you know, work for a university or um, a government agency, many of them do actually have subscriptions. They might just have to ask around to, to make sure they have access to it too. But yeah, those are, those are some of our biggest subscribers. In some ways, it's ridiculous. I remember getting the articles in the morning and then I think, you know, the climate wire came out at a certain point and then there was like the 3.30 news release and you're just like, how am I going to get any work done? Look at, I mean, right. these, these ridiculously interesting <laughs> I know. articles. You could read E&E all day. Yeah. And that's yeah. what the boss doesn't want. But, um, okay. Right. On that note, one of the stories I really want to dig into, I have you on and I, I think this is the official title is gentrification fears grow as high ground becomes hot property. And that's a relatively new article, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so for people who haven't read that, you know, if you could really briefly in, in a nutshell, and I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions about that, but what, what's that all about? That's about how as sea levels rise in South Florida in particular, in Miami in particular, there are people who live on high ground, who live on places that are higher just because of the geology of the region. And those places for many, many years were either home to people of color. They were often historically black neighborhoods and they were often poor neighborhoods. And now as 
sea levels rise, some of those neighborhoods are in the, um, there, there are developers, there are people who are thinking about how to, I don't know if retreat is the right word, but use those neighborhoods as to, uh, in the next several decades to be kind of the center of, of South Florida as sea levels rise and it becomes more difficult to live on some of the more vulnerable parts of that region. Okay, and it was a very long article and fascinating, and you should have moved through different communities and sectors within Miami. And, I mean, where did you get the idea for this story? And, you know, I, I actually have had Jesse Keenan on, and I think you've talked to him. He's a professor at Harvard and the, the notion right. of climate gentrification. I mean, you're hearing a lot about it more, but he, I, I think at one point he coined the, the, the phrase earlier on. And so, I mean, where did you get the idea to do this story and in Miami in particular? I used to live in Miami. I used to live and I used to write for the Miami Herald. And so is a familiar place to me. Um, and when I first started my job at uh, Climate Wire, I went down to Florida. It was one of the first things I did. And I went to this little sea level conference and I just started talking to people about kind of what they were, you know, what was out there. I was looking for stories and I was just looking for ideas about what was happening down there. And, a couple of community activists, and they're the ones who, they, they say that they coined the term climate gentrification, but, and I think Jesse would, would say very much so that, that he uses it. But he's not sure he's the first person who said it. Um, but they started talking to me about it. And these were people who were in certain neighborhoods doing education about climate change. So they were, one of the main things that they're doing is they are in some of these community groups is they're, they're showing people the potential impacts of climate change on their neighborhoods. And it's not just sea level rise, it's heat waves and uh, hotter temperatures, hotter sustained temperatures in a tropical place, which is used to having, you know, not, is not used to having temperatures above 100 degrees. It's not that, was not that common uh, in that part of the, uh, the country until recently. And so, so, you know, some housing isn't set up for having hot, hot, uh, long periods of weather. It's hot all the time, but, but having these real, these big heat events is different. Um, and so they were doing some education around that and they were showing people some tools that had been created to show where sea level rise might actually impact their neighborhoods in some places. And it just kind of, I, I thought about this for a long time. I mean, I didn't do the story for a year, but I thought about it for a long time, how to, how to get at it, how to, you know, it's, it's tough to prove that there is, that developers are going in and buying up land for the express purpose of having higher ground for people to live on so that, you know, they've got a, they've got a hot commodity. They've got a, 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 a situation where the, you know, the demand outstrips the supply. So they can make a lot of money, perhaps. That's hard to prove because the real real estate is complicated everywhere, but it's especially complicated in a place like Miami where there are boom and bust cycles and there are, you know, neighborhoods that are, that are already seeing some of the, the pressures of gentrification for other reasons that have nothing to do with climate change. So I wasn't really sure how to prove it. And I poked around, I talked to real estate experts, people who had some numbers that showed, you know, some trends, but it, it really, it, I just couldn't quite pin it down until I started talking to some of the academics who are looking at it. And I talked to people who really understood what was happening because they live there and they're seeing developers come into neighborhoods. And 
And so the caveat that I have with that story is that real estate is complicated in many places and in Miami in particular, but some of the historical housing patterns and the way the geography works there make it very clear that there are neighborhoods that poor people and people of color who have lived there for many, many years are, are going to be pushed out because of, because they live on high ground. Well, it's a fascinating story and there's just so many pieces to it. So I want to talk about one of the quotes from the article. Let me just read it to you really quickly. So, and in the era of climate change, those fleeing sea level rise will be on the lookout for a place to live on higher ground, which is likely to push people of color and the poor out of neighborhoods that have historically been mostly black or Caribbean. Okay. And so I, I read that in the, you know, a lot of the article kind of focuses on the whole concept and I'm from Florida. I, I grew up in Sarasota. I've been to Miami many times and it's just people live on the beach because it's gorgeous. You know, they have access to that water and it just, and I, you go, someone talks about this later on that article, but as the waters come up and if there's even a little bit of high ground, three miles and five miles in, rich people aren't going to want to go live there. I mean, if you think of what the new coastline will be, it'll be super polluted. It will be junky marsh. It won't just be pristine beaches. And so, I don't know. The, the, the notion of just very micro-migrations, it just strikes me as not likely. Well, um... <laughs> you don't have to have a definitive I mean, answer, but I no, just... No, I mean, I, I think that it's it's hard to predict exactly what what South Florida is going to look like. I think that as the waters retreat... I mean, there's a big city there, right? That So Miami is a a big city and there are, there's lots of infrastructure there. There's going to be a lot of interest on the part of local governments, on the people who have business interests there in kind of maintaining that core, that place. And that core is not the Miami beach, you know, that, that core is not Miami beach. There are a lot of people who are thinking about some of the adaptive measures that they can take in South Florida, including some folks at the architecture school at the university of Miami and they have some, you know, they have these, they have, they have these really cool drawings, things that you can do to elevate your home so that it's up higher. And so that as water comes in, it is, it is less vulnerable to sea level rise. And remember that sea level rise is, an, is kind of an incremental sort of thing. So, you know, it is an incremental thing. Um, so it happens slowly it's happening faster than, 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 you know, in recent, in the recent decade than it did before, but it is an incremental thing. So it's a, a the way that the place looks is going to change slowly and you can see it. I live there. Gosh, it's been um, 10 years since I lived in Florida. And, you know, when I go back, you can see how the, you can see how different some of, some of like my favorite beaches are. You can see how they've changed because of, sea level rise. You can see where water comes into places that it didn't come into before. It floods places that didn't flood before. So I don't think that that, that those changes will be, unless there is, and this is in the article, unless there is a dramatic major storm, a huge, a big hurricane that really destroys a lot of infrastructure, destroys property on the scale of Andrew or Katrina, then, um, then a lot of this change is going to be incremental. It's going to happen, you know, year by year, month by month, maybe year by year. And, and that is harder to plan for and visualize. It's harder for people to visualize and understand than is a dramatic event that immediately changes the landscape that immediately makes the marshes really, you know, awful, polluted, dirty, ugly. 
And there's so much sunshine there that it's really hard to, um, you know, the, the population right now just keeps growing in those places and in other sunbelt states. So I don't see that sort of, unless there's a dramatic event that happens, you know, I, I think that, um, the power of the real estate market is just going to keep churning for a while there. Well, I agree. And I have a few more questions about the real estate, but you'd mentioned that was my next question is, well, Florida is sort of unique, unlike maybe some other areas that it is very susceptible to large storm events. And you t- this was talked about in one of your articles dealing with New Orleans, but I, I look at a hurricane or even, and I don't even think it has to be like Andrew now that it's, it's almost like a sneak preview of what sea level rise will be like in the future. And so you go through this storm event, look at some of the localized flooding. What are some of the damages? Where, where are areas that really have to just kind of totally be redone? And you have a sneak peek of what might happen. And not everyone gets the benefit of being able to do that. And. Yeah, uh, I think the local governments are, are complete denial. Yeah, I think you used the word denial in, in your article about what ultimately is happening here. And the real estate, and I've used this in other podcasts before, is I mean, you've seen the movie The Big Short, right? Mm-hmm. And they go down to Miami and they just talk to the real estate people there and they're just completely or irrational about why they're buying these homes. And I think that's going to happen in South Florida indefinitely until there's that moment, like that catalyst, a major storm where they kind of give up on the area. So yeah, there's, there's two competing things, the irrational behavior of people wanting to go live in Florida <laughs> versus this wall of reality that's coming. And I think the, short, right. the climate gentrification to me is just sort of like this short term profit thing. You know, it's like, well, let's artificially create value and we're going to use this narrative of climate change to do it. And they're just flipping homes, you know? I, just, I mean, I'm speculating quite a bit here, but it's just Florida is so bonkers that way. It is bonkers that way. I lived there for a long time. And yeah, and I, and I, real estate is, was always a huge topic of discussion down there, you know, because I mean, it's just as people got wealthy from it. People lost fortunes because of, you know, and ordinary people sometimes. And yeah, I mean, it is just like what was in the big short. Absolutely. Yeah. And so you're right in the greater scheme of things. And someone says this in the piece too. Gentrification might be a blip on the climate change story. You know, it might be just a little, a little blip, but I'm going to argue that even if it is a little blip, um, it's not just Florida. This, this part of Florida has a unique story because, because the, the reason that people lived on higher ground in Miami in particular, in these neighborhoods in particular, was because they had to live there. The, the way that the Jim Crow laws worked, the way that housing patterns worked, they were forbidden from living on places like Miami Beach. They were forbidden from living in neighborhoods. This was written into, you know, the neighborhood covenants. This was written into the law in some places in Florida and in the South. And so for that reason, there are people who are getting screwed, you know, they're, they're, and they're often poor people and poor and people who have historically been screwed by government policies that redlined certain neighborhoods. And it's not fair. I mean, that's just simply not fair. And, and it's not just in South Florida. And, you know, there, there are places in the coastal Carolinas. There are places in, in some other parts of the country where maybe in parts of California, for example, or, or in New Orleans, where these same things are happening, where people have been 
people who have the least means to address the effects of climate change are being disproportionately affected by, you know, the impacts of, of climate change. And so that interests me as like, you know, a reporter that especially interests me as a reporter and as a human being. I, I was thinking about this. I, I couldn't come up with an example, but let's park sea level rise. But can you think of any other examples of climate gentrification or some variation of that based on some other climate change impact? Uh, did, did, have you thought about that? Have you encountered anything like that? Um, after the story came out, some climate researchers in Brazil thought that that might also be the case in like some of the poorer neighborhoods, the favelas of some of the cities of Brazil where people live on higher ground. They, they also thought, you know, that they're like, hmm, we're going to look into this, see if there's, you know, see if there's anything to it. I think New York, parts of New York City, Staten Island, for example, might be one of those places. And I haven't thought about it outside of the context so much of, of sea level rise, but I, I think that you could, you, this is a little bit trickier and a little bit more complicated. But if you think about riverine flooding and, and, and like river, you know, riverine flooding is different because there's a lot of like development, you know, patterns of development that affect how, how places flood, how, how they've been developed and what kind of farming practices might be in place where local governments have chosen to allow things to be built that, and how they build levees, for example, in parts of the Midwest that affect flooding. However, we do know that there is increased precipitation in much of the country, especially uh, the Northeast and in parts of the Midwest. And we know that that's coming and that it's going to probably intensify. And we've seen some storms like that, that kind of seem to come out of the blue, West Virginia last summer, uh, Baton Rouge last summer. And it's not so much that it's kind of the reverse of what you see in Florida. Florida is a special case. It's always a special case. Um, but yeah, exactly. Exactly. I can say that because I live there and you live there. Yeah. But I can see this being an issue, kind of the reverse of it, where actually people who have the least means to address flooding from that that has as one of its causes climate change. I can see that being a problem in in places where there has already been a really shoddy history of development of allowing cheap development, um, you know, to expand tax bases to occur in places where maybe uh, stuff should just shouldn't be built. And so it's not the same situation as Florida. It's kind of the reverse situation. People, uh, people of color and people who are often also at most, you know, the at, at risk, uh, be for, for some of the environmental justice and social justice reasons, they live in places that might be more vulnerable. You know, these are places that can sometimes be more polluted too, and, um, or might be more vulnerable to flooding because they're poor and because these are places where housing is available. And I can see that being a problem in many, many parts of the country, particularly in the South. And so, uh, but not just the South. And, and so I can see that being, that would, that would be a very interesting area of future inquiry. <laughs> yeah. I'm just, I'm getting these visions of, you know, what was it? A hundred years of Native Americans kind of getting screwed over on, you know, being forced out of certain areas and, you know, climate change, the environmental justice. It's, it's interesting that that field is, is growing quite a bit, but you know how it is. The cynic in me is you're just a an area without much in the way of resources. You're always going to be on that sort of 
getting screwed. And 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 I wanted to bring up as you were talking about Miami, but what what was interesting in regards of environmental justice, there was this. I don't know if it was a state representative or just a house rep in New Orleans, but it talked about how that storm event. I don't know if the language used was sort of like flushed out all these areas, and so they could sort of start fresh, and that kind of gentrification happened. And correct me if I'm wrong. That's that, that's kind of how I read your article, and he looked at it. From as a kind of a positive thing. Oh, we kind of get to start from scratch here. Did I read that right? I'm not sure which article you referred <laughs> to, but you know what? I might have been reading another person's article. I was looking doing yeah, research on yeah, yours, okay. but it was that's it was okay. a follow up on cli- it was another article about climate gentrification that I was reading. And yeah, this it was they were talking with folks in New Orleans. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm putting words in your mouth, but I'm just curious your thoughts. No, no, it's just like oh. I'm very cynical. They're like, oh well, this storm event, you know, boom, it, it cleans out this area and let's start fresh and look at all these well-to-do people moving into these other areas where we had long-standing issues of poverty and poor housing, and now we can just have a clean slate. And that's just so cynical. I think that it's not just cynical. It's, you know, it's disrespectful to the people who lived in those places and built lives and had families and history in those places. I mean, they, they, they're entitled to those histories and they are not, building wealth in those places, like the people who've come in and are, you know, or who stayed and who were able to stay, who maybe had the means to stay and, or maybe they can sell their home now. And, you know, they had a $200,000 house, they're selling it for $400,000 or something like that. But, um, those are just numbers pulled out of the air, (laughs) but, um, I, I don't think that that's, that's fair to those people who lived in those neighborhoods and who built them and created the sense of place and community that is so attractive to the newcomers. You know, I don't think that's fair to them and their lives were uprooted by, you know, events like Katrina. They will never be the same. And so, you know, their neighborhoods will never be the same. Their communities will never be the same. And sometimes perhaps it is helpful to, to disrupt these patterns of poverty. But, and I think that there've been, there's been some good research on this. Um, some social scientists have, have looked at, at what happens to people when they move after events like this. And, and I think it will be part of the discussion about adapting to climate change, you know, how you adapt and how you move move certain communities. It's certainly an issue in parts of, of Alaska that are having problems where there are native communities that are really struggling with how to move, how to perhaps give up a way of life that has been not just centuries in the making, but several thousand years of human settlement. You know, those are, uh, I, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a I don't even think it's cynical. I think it's 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 kind of cruel to to talk that way about people's lives. You know, it's, it's well. Here, that. let me. I found it. It was in Grist and Brenton oh, cool. Mock. I don't oh, know okay. if you've ever heard of him. He's the reporter who did it. Let me just read this really quickly. Even if you believe gentrification is not sure. a problem because poor African-Americans and Latinos get displaced more often than not by economic instability, there's still nothing that will clear out a community faster than a natural disaster. As former Louisiana state rep Richard Baker said after Hurricane Katrina, quote, we finally cleaned up public housing. We couldn't do it, but God did. And I'm sure there's probably more to his quote, but I, I you know, Gris probably really did capture what he was trying to get at. So, that's 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 awful and that's that's going to be playing out all along the coast that's sure what co- yeah no it will be i mean it's it people and people have to have somewhere to go and there has been a there's um i don't remember his name off of the top of my head but there's a, a scientist at the um a demographer at the university of georgia who has done some really cool work 
on looking at where people will go um, when from sea level rise. He's done some really interesting work just looking at how patterns of movement might play out. And one of the things that came up in um, his work is that no place is really untouched by sea level rise in the U.S., crazy as it may seem, because people will move. They will migrate. Some of them will migrate because they're forced to migrate by a big event like a Katrina. So it'll be involuntary migration. And some people will move because they see the writing on the wall in Miami beach and they realize that it's, it's just not sustainable to live in a place like that. And some of them will move because a hurricane's Andy creates a situation in their community where they can't rebuild the house because the zoning laws have changed or the the rules for rebuilding have changed in a way that makes it too expensive to live where they lived any any longer and so there are people who are going to move because of this and he um he did some really cool just blanking on his name i'm so sorry about that um and he, he did some really cool work that looked at how people will move. And based on these projections, they're going to probably move to some of the same places where they are already moving um, for various reasons, Atlanta, uh, Austin, Texas. Um, but there are even places in uh, the Midwest that will see movement. And because I'm in Oregon right now, I've actually talked to people about this here, how um, there's also some, some research, research that shows, you know, how the Pacific Northwest might be affected by climate change. And compared to other parts of the country, it stands to lose the least in a lot of ways. Like, of course, it'll get warmer and um, or, you know, possibly get warmer and weather patterns will change. The climate patterns people are used to will change, but it won't be like, say, the South, which could be um, parts of the Southeast, which could be much more unbearably hot in future decades and, you know, 20 to 30 years. And so there are parts of the country that are going to see some really interesting population shifts. And that's what they're predicting uh, because of changes in people's direct environment and those are the changes that people really understand. They understand what it's like to have a warmer winter. They understand what it's like for the summer to be unbearably hot and to have more heat waves. Those are, you know, they understand what it, what it means to have sea level rise. Uh, so I think that those will be some interesting, uh, you know, studies to watch and to see if that begins to play out. Okay, so we really dug into that article, which I wanted, and I want to just ask you a few more questions, but just, I guess, one last question yeah. regarding that story, and maybe I missed it, and I did read it twice, is I didn't really notice any state people or federal people that you interviewed, and was that on purpose, or was it, you know, in Florida, with the state, obviously, is a bit bonkers regarding climate change, did it, was were this just not relevant to the story at the time? I don't know. It was like 5,000 words. So I don't think I could have gotten anything more in there um, and had anyone read it. But, I, you know, this was a story about a specific kind of real estate pattern and a specific thing that was happening in Miami. So I'm not really sure that some, you know, that, a, a for example, a member of Congress or something weighing in would have would have added that much okay. to it. I was just curious if the politics of climate change played into who you could talk to, but it didn't sound like that was an issue. No, that wasn't an issue. I mean, that's, that is always an interesting issue in Florida for sure. <laughs> but that wasn't really a part of that particular piece. I have written stories about Florida where that is a part of the discussion where there is a tension and a frustration between local government and, you know, like county and cities and the, and the governor's office. That certainly is, that tension exists and it is a part of 
climate change discussions, but it just wasn't really a part of this story. Okay, so I, I sent you an article today. I don't know. Did you can't get a chance to glance at it, that Washington Post article? Yeah, mm-hmm. I did. So you you didn't know Joel Clement. I knew him. Well, actually gave me a recommendation for a job once. Oh, so how funny. <laughs> he, really interesting guy. I've always been amazed by that. So for folks, that I, I sent Erica an article from the Washington Post's opinion piece from Department of Interior employee Joel Clement. And this is all out there now. He's uh, he's revealed to the world, but he's basically kind of, it's a whistleblower kind of situation. Talking, he, he worked on climate change issues at DOI. And he's been reassigned. And this is so fantastically cynical, like as an accountant department within the sort of oil and gas revenue department. So, you know, he went from climate change work, adaptation work to they buried him there. And so his whole opinion piece was talking about this process. And he wanted to kind of come out and say, I'm going to officially file complaints and all that. And I'm, I'm just curious your thoughts about what's kind of going on there because I don't you didn't know him but he was literally ground zero for adaptation planning at DOI kind of behind the scenes person and you know that's coming to a grinding halt yeah I think that uh we've seen a number of scientists and we've seen people in the state department and in other federal agencies have this happen to them where they are reassigned or they essentially have no job anymore because if you're not part of the climate, the, the, you know, the global climate negotiations. What do you do in the State Department if you're, you know, like if you, if that's not even happening, if you're not even talking to other countries about, you know, what's going on. So I think we've seen a lot of this. We've seen, you know, we've, we've seen the scientific community especially have a lot of debates. There was the, the science march and, and, and everything over. Um, you know, how politically active they should be, what their role is. And I mean, maybe I sound cynical now, but this is the consequence of elections. This is what happens in administrations. And it's not right at all. You know, th- these are these are areas of grave importance, but that is what happens when the administration changes. Yeah, I think some people were hoping that the whole topic of adaptation would kind of f- float under the radar, you know, it's land planning, it's uh, those kind of issues. But I think the witch hunt is is full throttle on, on every area of climate change. And I think he, he's sort of a reflection on that. And, and it really is a shame if you got Joel was in the private sector, foundation work, just amazing character. And I can't believe he went to government. I was always amazed to see him in the federal government, but he was a, he was a purist and being a civil servant. And so that it's a shame that he's being treated this way, and I'm sure he's one of many that are experiencing this. So, it, yeah, not a good situation. Yeah, yeah, no, and I think that you know that's a you know it's pretty brave to come out and and say it. And I think you know hopefully he'll land on his feet <laughs> after after the dust settles. Um, you know, just because that's pretty courageous to do something like that. All right. Well, okay. A couple more questions here. So, who yeah. are some of your favorite climate reporters? Oh man, um, that's a hard question um, because there's some really great work being done all over the country. And I want to just give a shout out. I already have for the team at Climate Wire and at E and E because they're they're amazing. They do just do really terrific work. And it's sometimes because it's behind a paywall, you know, not as visible as say what like the New York Times is doing. But they do really really incredible work. And I also think that I have seen some really terrific reporting in places that are like places like Idaho or places like uh, Missouri, where reporters who cover local government, who cover environmental issues, weave 
climate change into just about everything they do. And the, there's some great examples in some of the reporting that, for example, the, um, the St. Louis Post Dispatch did, uh, during the flooding. Like, they really delved into this, the, that they had, uh, you know, a few months ago. They really delved into it, whether this, these were things that were, you know, whether the flooding there was, was, uh, how much of it was, could be attributed to climate change. And so I think that there's some, some really great reporting out there on that front. And, and I think there are a lot of people out there who are writing about adaptation to climate change without really maybe knowing what they're writing about, you know, without it being their beat, um, because it's becoming such an obvious issue in so many places. Well, what I might do is ask you if, if you have like quick links to maybe a couple of these, I can stick these in show notes of like examples sure, of yeah. like reporting you thought's really good. All right. Final question. And I ask this of every guest. If I, if you recommend any person to come on the podcast, who would it be? Oh, it would be my former editor at Climate Wire, Lisa Friedman. Um, right, she's Lisa. now, she's not, yeah, you know, Lisa. She's, um, she's at the New York Times now. And, and Lisa is, um, has a really broad understanding of global climate issues, the politics of climate change, and everybody should read her work, um, in the New York Times. Yeah. She really, uh, had the foresight to create this adaptation beat too. And, and so, yeah, have her on. You know what, Lisa, I know you get this podcast. You're going to listen to this one. So I'm inviting you on, Lisa. If you're listening, you better be listening. And you know what's kind of funny, and I think you were part of a couple of those, is that Lisa was starting her own podcast at Climate Wire, but then she obviously got this amazing gig at the New York Times. Very understandable to leave. But yeah, that's a great idea. And um, I'll do the... I still hear from her. I'm on her mailing list, so I'll. Oh, excellent. I'll get, she might give me one. Oh, I got to be at the Times for another six months before I do it. But uh, I'll try to get her on. Okay, so on that note, you had mentioned earlier you are no longer at Climate Wire, but you're doing some independent journalism. Is there any sort of thing? I'm not sure how you do that, but if people are interested in working with you, should they contact you? Or are you sort of seeking things out yourself? I just want to give you this chance, kind of on the podcast. What, what what's Oh, sure. Either or. Yeah, no, if people are interested in hiring me, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm open for business and um, they can reach out to me through my website, which is just ericabolstead.com. They can contact me there or on Twitter too, Erica, which is just er- also Erica Bolstead, E-R-I-K-A-B-O-L-S-T-A-D. Okay. And so for those who listening, if you're looking at your show notes on your phone, I will have those links in it. So you can just click on it really easily. All right. On that note, th- this has been a pleasure, Erica. I, I wish we would have connected we, I wish we could have connected sooner, but I'm hopefully we're gonna we're gonna stay in touch. And you know, any last thoughts? Just your your thoughts about adaptation or what's going on here? I think we covered a lot of ground. I do. Yes. Rising sea ground, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Take care. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap to this episode. Thanks to Erica Bolstad for coming onto the podcast and for all the amazing reporting that she does. I hope she keeps on doing this important work. Okay, some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Adapts and ask to join, and I will approve you right away. It's more of an insider conversation on the podcast, and people share their own stories, and it's just a it's a community that we're building up for America Adapts. Don't forget to check out the new updated website at americadapts.org. All my information is in the show notes. So for those on iTunes, the show notes there are giving you all these links. 
And again, please consider supporting the podcast. I will be going on location more in the coming year, and it requires ongoing support from all of you. I hope you consider donating. Okay, adapters, do me a favor this week. Go find another adapter and let them know about this podcast. Let's keep the number of adapters growing out there. All right. I hope you all have a great week. Until next time. 